Hi, Mary Beth. Good morning, Amy. How are you today? Great. How are you? Good. Loving all this technology. Yeah, here we go. So I asked Mary Beth Doyle, who teaches at St. Michael's College with me, to to join me in my first podcast to talk about the history and the foundation of special education law. So thank you for joining me. You're welcome. You're very welcome. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey in the world of special education as it relates to advocacy, special education law, and ethics work. That's such a big uh, question, and um, it all comes back to my thinking about uh, my own journey that's been rooted in relationships with individual students and their families. Mm -hmm. So kids with complex learning profiles, um, I really appreciate the clarity and lack of pretenses when I'm in a relationship with somebody with significant learning needs. Um, So for me, it started as a special ed teacher right uh, after 94-142 was passed. Um, Law and ethics for me Um, intertwine and are really about creating access and opportunity for all it's a it's about community and I I firmly believe that the manner in which we treat the most vulnerable members of our community is a direct reflection um, on our community as a whole that's kind of like here that's a wonderful answer thank you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you reflect on what you believe to be the most influential shifts in the special education movement with regards to the law, what moments come to mind? Wow, certainly the passage of 94-142 is the most important core civil rights act um, on behalf of school-age kids with disabilities. Um, We're all very familiar with it, and coming off of Brown versus Board of Ed, it really gave us a, a taproot into Everybody Matters. Um, But the thing that's even more exciting now are the more recent cases that have um, gone through the Supreme Court. Andrew, uh, the Andrew versus Douglas County is a really exciting one to me because for the first time, um, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that de minimis standard is no longer enough for people with disabilities. And prior to that, it was. Um, So... I think that one is probably the most exciting one uh, legal case of our time. And we will be studying that one. And I just, it always makes me think about um, the standard that you put forth for students. Would it be okay for a student without a disability when you contemplate educational decisions that you make for students? Yeah, absolutely. The would it be okay test is an important test. Right. Right. And, and to think is just the minimum. Okay. Um, And so it's really powerful and I'm excited um, for students to be able to see that, that evolution from the 14th amendment, you know, Mm -hmm. to Brown versus board of ed, Mm -hmm. then to Rowley and then to Andrew to really see that it's in this case law that the, that the law stays alive and evolves. Yes. And the Fry case, the recent Fry case about service animals is another one that to me is so hopeful as um, this young girl was denied access to a service dog in school um, and the role of the service dog was to help her increase her independence away from adults, away from paras, and just um, going down that path to look at why we make the decisions we make and um, 
would it would it be okay for another student to be completely reliant on adult all an adult all day? Probably not. So the Fry case is another really exciting one. Although Andrew, I think, is uh, the most noteworthy. I agree. Um, I felt that with the Fry case, it caused this great pause when you think about how the school said, "Well, we're we're applying and providing an equivalent," you know, and so it's it's okay. And it was interesting because we talked about this at the dinner table at my house. And, you know, one of my kids was like, oh, well, then that seems fair. And I loved, I believed it was in the Supreme Court justice's um, decision. He wrote, you know, that's, that's as if saying that, well, we won't allow you to bring your wheelchair in the school, but we will provide someone to carry you around. So it's the equivalent. <laughs> what, what a great comparison. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're on our first day of class and we're focusing on three key topics. And I was wondering if you could share a personal takeaway on each of these topics that might expand our thinking through a real life story from your advocacy work. Mm -hmm. So the first topic is we're working on reflecting on our cognitive biases that we have related to disability. We're working today to think about how our biases can have a huge impact on the educational experiences we offer to our future students. Mm -hmm. Can you provide an example of when you've witnessed an educator's bias negatively impacting the programming that they provide for a student? Yes, actually I see this often. Um, and it it's rooted in a lack of expectation on the part of many um, general, ed, general ed and special ed teachers in terms of expectations for kids with complex learning profiles. And that lack of expectation waters down curriculum. And my experience in the schools is the more significant the disability, the more likely it is that there's really not a curriculum that's rich and interesting. The kids are pretty isolated. Um, so I, I think uh, just recently I was in a high school and all day long, uh, a young woman with complex learning needs was managed. Her chair was pushed. Her um, clothes were changed. She was fed, but there was not one interaction with a non-disabled peer or or a peer with a disability. There were no interactions with peers, and it. When I asked the paras and the teacher about it, the universal response was, "She's not aware of what's going on, so it really doesn't matter." Oh, wow. and that's pretty common. Yeah, right. I I feel as though it's rarely a a situation of likability. You know, mm -hmm. oftentimes people genuinely have, you know, think that these kids are great kids mm -hmm. and that, but they just don't have that expectation for them to excel. Yeah. And to have real friends and be in a community where people care about them. And so LRE becomes an escape hatch, you know, uh, and, and kids who are included, you know, that's clearly my bias is uh, inclusive opportunities for all kids, but kids who are included more often than not. It's not teachers who are making the inclusion happen. It's parents. Parents are forcing it. And the more capable a parent is, the more resources a parent has, there's a direct correlation with whether or not their kids are included. And that's just not ethical. Right. Could you provide an example of when you've observed bias at the system level that impacted student, you know, more than one student's experience? And were you able to shift that system in a positive direction? Um, and to think about what strategies you used um, that you found effective um, mm -hmm. to help people to recognize their blind spots and think critically mm -hmm. beyond them. 
Yes, there was a uh, district in another state um, where the administrators had decided behind the scenes that um, kids would be sent to schools uh, throughout the local districts, multiple districts, based on disability. So if a student had Down syndrome, the student was going to go to school A. If a student had cerebral palsy, they would be going to school B. Oh, wow. Of course, that's exactly <laughs> that's outrageously illegal, but it was a behind the, the door uh, handshake deal. And somehow it got out and um, I was called on behalf of a family who was a kid with Down syndrome to say, you know, we want, we just want our kid to go to um, his neighborhood school, um, our neighborhood school with his brothers and sisters, which is what we want for all kids. And we fought, we, you know, fought that back in the seventies. So the first thing I did was worked with the administrators um, and we really broke down their biases we, uh, I did a lot of um, creative problem solving with them. And then we came up with an action plan that the teachers were part of at the various schools, especially the teachers first, but the teachers were part of cracking open what would happen. Um, and we dismantled the system. It took, um, I don't know, five or six years of ongoing work. So I would be in consultation with uh, teachers in their rooms and uh, with families and teams on a monthly basis. And then um, until they're ready to go on their own, and uh, and they have, they really shifted how they looked at service provision for kids with disabilities. Yeah, I think it's oftentimes about building people's capacity, yeah. and when they feel confident, they're oftentimes more willing to make that shift. Yes, and they yeah. do require support oftentimes, and that and I feel like that's a big role of special educators is Mm -hmm. to bolster general educators' ability to support these kids and to educate them effectively. Absolutely, I completely agree. So our our second topic is related to the idea of what it means to be an ethical educator. It's such a complex concept. What does this concept bring to mind for you? What limitations or mindsets have you witnessed being barriers for special educators when it comes to truly functioning as an educational, I'm sorry, as an ethical educator? This I thought this was the best question. I love the question because it's such a hard one. Um, teachers don't get into this line of work to be unethical. Um, and so to even pose it is challenging, I think, sometimes. But, I, but with special ed teachers in particular, I think that when they're not supportive of whatever it is, the shift that makes sense to go forward with within our fields, because law is alive. When people aren't supportive, more often than not, it has to do with fear. They're afraid that somebody will find out that they don't have an answer, as opposed to engaging in really hard conversations with each other. Say, how, what, what is it that we know? And how can we take what we know and put it into practice? And what else do we need to learn? So I think fear is something that gets in the way more often than not. And we're also operating within a system where the the people in the system have changed dramatically, but the structure of schooling has not changed in hundreds of years. So we're asking teachers to do things that they hadn't, the schools weren't designed to do. Yes, and I also think that some sometimes caseloads can get so big 
that special educators are just forever struggling to find time, to find time to innovate, to find time to collaborate. Um, And it can really make it so you start to function in a vacuum, you know, and Mm -hmm. not to have those moments of reflective pause to say, what's really happening here? What decisions am I making? And how can I move move both the team and the student forward um, to really provide an ethical education. I always think of my first years as a special educator. I just, I didn't have the skill set I needed to teach kids with dyslexia. And it was when Mm -hmm. I think of the behaviors those kids were exhibiting um, because I was Mm -hmm. not moving them forward. um, You know, it took me a couple Mm -hmm. of years. And at that point, the research was really weak on what was what was at the root cause of dyslexia and how we should approach it. Um, and so we just kind of floundered. And I just remember the, mm-hmm. the behaviors of those kids as we were all floundering together. And it's just night and day from once I knew how to really approach the curriculum and to help them really break the code. It, it became a whole, an yeah. entirely different landscape for us. And I just I, I'll remember those kids' names for the rest of my life because I feel as though, you know, I failed them. The system failed them. Um, they were my first ones and mm-hmm. I just, I wasn't ready yet. And so for me, I always think mm-hmm. of being an ethical educator is really pushing yourself to be competent. Yes. Well, and we've got a system that's designed where the, your first year, you're supposed to be as skilled as your last yes. year. And so, and in states where there are no caseload limits, because there are states that have caseload limits, um, special educators can have as many students as general ed teachers, plus they've got all of the meetings and paraprofessionals and related service personnel. So it, it becomes impossible. You know, we built it, we, we work through this system that really has all sorts of possibility built within it but we shy away from it and we put barriers up ourselves. We put those barriers up. Yes. And so our final topic is the foundational structure of, of our government as it relates to special ed and special mm-hmm. ed law history. Um, and so I was mm-hmm. hoping you could briefly share the story you told me a few weeks ago about the origins of IDEA. Yes, I, <laughs> I love this. Um, the One of the nice things about uh, living in the United States is that law is alive and we influence regular regular people influence law. And so back in the late 60s, early 70s, there were a group of, uh, there was a group of mothers who wanted their children with disabilities to go to public school. And so this group of mothers, small group, kept getting together, getting together. And um, they were at a restaurant one night and they outlined what became 94-142. And early on, it was often referred to as the law of angry mothers, <laughs> uh, which I just, I just love because an angry mother can accomplish just about anything, even getting her kid into public school. Um, That's great. I, I just love that one. And so when I originally began to prepare to teach this course, I really thought about, I kept thinking, oh, day one, structures of government and really providing that background knowledge. But the more I really kept thinking about the evolution of the course and where I wanted to take people, I realized that that structure really follows you through your career. Um, you know, when, when special educators are being asked to do time studies or it's that administrative role and understanding um, the why of, of oftentimes mm-hmm. things that seem like 
tedious, empty tasks. Um, you know, it's so, it's so, I think that understanding those structures can be really impactful for educators um, to, to, to almost just stay positive about the oftentimes, you know, that vast amount of checks and balances that exist in special ed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the checks and balances are important. And I also think that um, it's, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. I, I think some procedures are put into place that aren't necessary. So, so being able to tease out why we do things and to always ask why, why is that put into place? And here in Vermont, we are really fortunate because we have such access to each other and to people at the AOE to really understand why we're being asked to do what we're being, what we're being asked to do. And so the time study is such a good example is related to funding and, um, is it is the time worth the cost of uh, generate a time study, or do we realign and relook at how we provide funding for the education of all children? So it's so the time study is all about keeping general ed money and special ed money apart. And the truth is, all of that money, the way I look at it, is it's like looking at a junk drawer and getting a piece of yarn out. <laughs> In a real classroom, it's so hard to tease out which um, piece of yarn goes where. Um, so, so I think that ethical educators don't just say no, and they, they also don't just move forward and do what they're told. But we're always learning and questioning, does this make sense? If it makes sense, okay, how do I continue to improve it? If it doesn't make sense, What's a productive way forward for me to change the system? We have power to change the system. It's probably one of my favorite things about, about our field is that it's forever evolving and, and the amount of challenge mm-hmm. and just that opportunity in the summer to pause and think about mm-hmm. you know, how we're moving forward. Um, so on a final note, what would you like to leave mm-hmm. our participants with mm-hmm. as they head into this mm-hmm. course? Any advice? Yes, we're not finished. Um, We need thoughtful, energetic, new special ed teachers. We need people who are fearless on behalf of kids with complex learning profiles and who are willing to problem solve for the next generation. Um, As I think about the history of special ed and the treatment of people with disabilities, you know, it's a terrifying history and it's not a distant history. You know, it's only after many years of cries from Amnesty International and the United Nations uh, using you know, articles against torture that the United States just outlawed this year, 2020, the use of contingent electric shock on people with disabilities. The FDA just finally said no. Yeah. So, And it was being used routinely in Massachusetts at the Judge Rothenberg Center. So what this says is we're not finished. And that's the hope is this next group of special ed teachers are going to take us into the next phase, places we can't even imagine that are hopeful and wonderful. I love that because, you know, it's oftentimes hard when we talk about special ed history. It just leans Mm -hmm. towards the negative because that's the reality. And that's very similar Mm -hmm. to our current culture in this country 
um, with the racial inequity and, and, and what mm. we're, you know, experiencing as a country and the hurt is that we do lean towards the negative because that's the reality. Yet that doesn't mean we mm -hmm. don't have hope. And I always leave my students the last, th last thing I always say to my undergraduate students is they leave classes with a fierceness, you know, just that, that, that same approach of you just have to be ready and, and to just, and to just push with all your heart for these kids. So Mary Beth, thank yeah. you so much for joining us. It's a very, Im <laughs> very imperfect situation trying to create a podcast at home with a, with lots of noises, doors opening and closing and kids running around, but that's the life of, of a pandemic. That's right. It's reality. Thank, thank you, you, Amy. And have a wonderful okay, class. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.